scripture reading today comes from Jeremiah, first chapter, first through the 19th verse. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to, to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north disaster shall be set loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgment against them, for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods, and worshiped the works of their own hand. But you dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. The word of God. Greetings. Good morning. I'm Paul Major. I'm one of the pastoral assistants here at Christ Central Church. And as always, it is an honor to be able to bring the word to you uh, as I do today. For those of you visiting... Pastor Brown is currently preaching through the book of Hebrews, but he's out of town this morning. Also, Pastor McKnight isn't preaching today because he's getting himself ordained today on what I call the St. Charles Ordination Day. And so, on such a joyous and festive occasion, you get to see the third string preach. So, we'll see how this goes. Uh, so instead of looking at Hebrews, uh, we're actually going to 
sort of switch gears and look at the first chapter of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, like most of the prophets, deals with God warning his people that if they don't get their acts together, bad things are coming. The prophetic books are essentially lawsuits between God and his people, with the prophets acting as prosecutors on God's behalf. The prophets are God's hype men and promoters, like Flava Flav and Don King. Because, you see, God is also the judge in this lawsuit. Yet he's more than some unbiased third party, some Judge Judy. He is actively involved and personally invested in the outcome of these proceedings. More than anything, he wants the defendants, his people, to admit that they were wrong. He doesn't want to punish them. But as a just judge, if they continue to ignore his law, he must punish them. But now we need to be careful when we look at this uh, that we don't confuse this prophetic punishment with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because of sin, everybody is guilty before God and deserves to be punished. But God, in his kindness, gave Israel the sacrificial system, which basically transferred the punishment from the sinner to the sacrifice. But in the prophets, we're dealing with more than just the general sinful, fallen condition of humanity, if you can even talk about sin as just this sort of basic baseline. Uh, we're talking about more than just that sin that separates humanity from the perfection and holiness and sinlessness of a perfect God. We're dealing with a disregard for how our sins hurt God. An apathy towards the fact that our actions are indeed wrong. I've had to go to the dentist a lot recently. Think of the sacrificial system like brushing and flossing. And think of these prophetic punishments as a root canal. One, in many cases, now I'm not talking about dental care here now, but one can prevent the other. What made the sacrificial system appear to work was at least an outward expression of needing forgiveness. But once the people stopped thinking they needed to be forgiven, they stopped acting like God actually mattered or even existed. And they started sacrificing to false gods, not for forgiveness, but to get stuff. Wealth, power, crops, victory in battle. This is a giant leap in the wrong direction. So the prophets didn't deal with minor misdemeanor crimes against God. But in a high profile, Johnny Cochran, if he were a prosecution lawyer kind of cases, they, they handled um, class action lawsuits, but in reverse. The prosecuting prophet speaks on behalf of God against his whole people, and he's suing them for breach of contract, breaking the covenant or the agreement that says, I will be your God and you will be my people and no one else's. 
So let's look at verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Without going into a history lesson, it should still be noted that other than That guy, Josiah, these other two kings, who were both his sons, were evil kings. In fact, except for Josiah and his grandfather, Hezekiah, sorry, his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, there hadn't been a good king in Jerusalem for a hundred years. And because the kings were not following God, but worshiping idols, the people were allowed to abandon God the God of their fathers, and worship idols. Most alarmingly uh, is that child sacrifice was all the rage during this time. And Josiah's own grandfather, the king, Manasseh, was uh, guilty of sacrificing one of his own sons as a burnt offering. Uh, And to make matters worse, his own father, Ammon, was so wicked that his servants had him killed. So Jeremiah comes onto the scene in a particularly troubling time for the people of God. The kings can't get right, and the people can't get right, but besides all of the political and religious turmoil going on within Jerusalem, there's a devastating changing of the guard going on with the political powers of the day. Assyria, who was once the ruler of the ancient world, and a hundred years earlier had destroyed the northern kingdom, leaving Jerusalem surrounded by its enemies, was fizzling out. And Egypt and Babylon were vying for ultimate power with Jerusalem in the middle. Egypt too eventually fizzled out, but not before killing Josiah, who was the last real hope for the Jews. So Jeremiah prophesies in the midst of chaos what is essentially a come to Jesus, get right or get out, halftime yellathon while Babylon prepares to take over the world. Like Vince Lombardi's famous gentleman, this is a football. Jeremiah holds up the sinfulness of Jerusalem as if to say, gentlemen, this is sin. Yet in the midst of this very unpopular, unsexy message that Jeremiah has been created to deliver, there is some hope. Not only for Jeremiah and his people, but also for us. The first chapter of Jeremiah tells us that through God, we have a purpose, a promise, and a protector. Through God, we have a purpose. Looking back at verse 1, we see that Jeremiah has a prestigious pedigree As a priest, he was born into a bloodline of priests who traced their family tree all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so he had no choice but to be a priest. Simply because he was born to a priest meant that he was called to be a priest. But verses 4 and 5 tell us that he was called to be something more. 
Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Not only was Jeremiah a priest by no effort of his own, but he was appointed as a prophet to the nations by God before he was even born. God tells Jeremiah that before he was even conceived, he had been consecrated and made to be a prophet to the nations, not just the Jews, but to all nations. God has consecrated Jeremiah, which means to set apart, to be used for a specific purpose. Before Jeremiah was even conceived, in fact, before creation had even begun, God set Jeremiah apart for this specific purpose. Just as he had been set apart uh, genetically and biologically to be a priest, he had been set apart divinely and supernaturally to be this, a prophet to the nations. A prophet was, as I said before, a, a covenant lawyer, a covenant prosecutor against a sinful people. This is not exactly a popular calling. Which is why Jeremiah responds the way he does. Verse 6. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am a youth. The God of all creation has appeared to him, telling him that he has been called for a specific purpose. And how does he respond? The same way Moses responds. The same way Peter responds. The same way Bob Dylan and T. Payne respond. It ain't me. Jeremiah says, look, God, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm just a kid. I don't have experience in these things. I don't know how to talk good. But what makes this more startling is that what looks like praise and respect to our eyes is actually more like cussing for Jeremiah. Ah, Lord God isn't some holy roller lingo, but basically means, why, God? Why? Why'd you have to pick me to do this? I don't want to do this. I'm not cut out for this. Aren't you, God? Don't you know that I'm not the right guy? Why, God, in all of your wisdom and knowledge, did you have to pick me for this? But God, in all of his wisdom and knowledge, tells Jeremiah that those kind of arguments don't work on him. Verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declare the Lord. Now, if I were Jeremiah right now, I would probably be asking questions that I don't really want to know the answer to, like, What's to be afraid of? Uh, deliver me from what? Or even, okay, what exactly do you want me to prophesy about? But Jeremiah can't even open his mouth before God has his hand in it. Verse 9, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Before we look at verse 9, we need to actually look at verse 10 in order to see what God is telling Jeremiah to do. God says, I've appointed you as overseer or foreman or big boss over this construction site known as the world. Your job is to tear it down and to rebuild it. Being married to a designer, we watch a lot of HGTV. And therefore, we watch a lot of home renovation shows. Uh, love it or list it, Property Brothers, Rehab Addict, Flipper Flop, and my personal favorite, yeah, I actually have a favorite, Fixer Upper. Yes, I heard somebody say yes. <laughs> Fixer Upper stars Chip and Joanna, a married couple in Texas who convince people to buy the worst house in the best neighborhood and then fix it up. Most of the time, these houses have serious structural problems that my man Chip and his crew have to spend more time than they originally thought fixing up. But through the magic of television, within 30 minutes, they're doing the big reveal of an amazing house that used to be a piece of junk. And this is what God is telling Jeremiah to do. But without the magic of television, without the budget, without cooperation, Jeremiah is called to tear down all that is bad and build up something new and beautiful and structurally sound in its place. And while Jeremiah ultimately is unable to do that, where Jeremiah ultimately fails, God doesn't. Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer uh, calls us humans glorious ruins. We are the run-down, road-hard, and put-up-wet, decrepit and derelict ruins of what we were originally designed to be. We, when, sorry, when we were first married, Mary Jo and I lived in an apartment in an old factory. But just down the road was another old factory uh, that had long been abandoned. Windows broken out, stuff falling down, graffiti everywhere. It was in ruins. But someone saw the potential, and like where we lived, decided it was worth the investment and the time to renovate that old factory and make it into something more than just an eyesore. They saw glorious ruins. We are glorious ruins. Though Jeremiah could not single-handedly pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow, build up and replant Jerusalem, God, through Jesus Christ, can and does do so with us. He, make, he takes the messes of our lives, the sorrows and addictions, the current sins and the generational sins, and he performs a complete overhaul of our souls, restoring us to the dignity and beauty that we were created for. As image bearers, there is still a slight resemblance between who we are and who we were created in the image of. 
Though that resemblance has become distorted and corroded and rusted over because of sin, Jesus is restoring us, renovating us, refurbishing us to our original design and to God's original specifications. Now let's look at verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. My words. God's words. The reason that we can believe that we are glorious ruins being renovated and redeemed, the reason that we can believe that, like Jeremiah, we were known before we were conceived, set apart before we were born, is because these aren't Jeremiah's words. These words aren't the creation of men. These words aren't some psychosomatic opiate that makes us feel better. These words aren't horse blinders made to distract us from the cold reality that life is unfair and then you die. These words are God's words. And what they tell us is that we have a purpose. Like Jeremiah, we have been consecrated, set apart, holy-fied, not because of some innate skill or desire or goodness, not because we have impressed God or convinced God or because God owes us, but because God loves us. Wherever you are in this life, unemployed, overemployed, healthy, sick, wishing you were married, wishing you were single, Emotionally, sorry, an emotional roller coaster or emotionally unstable. Sorry, I messed that up. An emotional roller coaster or emotionally stable. God has you where He wants you. Where He has put you is where you are meant to be today. And God has a purpose in that. Just like Jeremiah didn't want to be the mouthpiece for God in a culture of sin and stubbornness, you may not want to be where you are. But God has a purpose for this and a purpose for you. He is redeeming you through your circumstances and He is redeeming your circumstances through you. God also has a promise for His people. Verse 11, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, an almond branch. Then the, the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Immediately after God reaches out and touches Jeremiah's lips and gives him his marching orders, he shows him the first of two visions. Jeremiah sees an almond branch. This brings me to an unfortunate truth about God that I've really had to wrestle with. God likes puns. If you didn't already know this about me, now you do. I hate puns. They are the lowest form of humor. They are worse than mimes or Larry the Cable Guy. But God loves puns. And if you have your Bibles out, you may uh, see a footnote that says something like, in Hebrew, almond sounds like watching. The Hebrew word for almond is shakade. And the Hebrew word for watching is shokade. Funny, right? 
It would work better in English if he like held up a Rolex. I'm watching. Uh, but nonetheless, don't laugh at that. <laughs> but nonetheless, God asks Jeremiah what he sees, and Jeremiah says, I see a stick of shockade. And God goes, Aha, I'm showcade, watching over my word. But what word? The promise that he just made to Jeremiah? Or the promise he's about to make? Or every promise God has ever made? The answer is yes. God uses this image to remind Jeremiah and encourage him that he is watching, actively alert to make sure all of his promises come true. Not just about this particular situation, but including this particular situation. God, through the Bible, has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make my name known among the nations. Fear not, for I am with you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Call upon me and I will deliver you. I will give you a new heart. If you confess your sins, I will forgive you. I love the world so much that I sent my only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. These promises are not just trite platitudes. They're not just bumper stickers. These are the very words of God who by words created the world and through his son the eternal word came to save the world. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why through him that we that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So not only does God have a purpose for us, but he has made us abundant promises and in Christ all these promises are yes and amen. But even more than that, we have a protector Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Fortunately, the explanation of this vision is not a pun. But unfortunately, the explanation is clear that because of the sins of the people, destruction is coming. Just a century before, God allowed the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So no one should think that God is crying wolf now. However, unfortunately, the people refused to listen to Jeremiah. And he has to bear the mantle of seeing all these prophecies of destruction and death come true. The boiling pot is bubbling over. And the destruction that is coming will pour itself out upon Jerusalem. God is calling the Babylonians from the north to come and conquer his people. And because they have refused to turn away from their false gods and worship him, they will be destroyed. Yeah, God is a jealous God. But he has every right to be. Yes, God is angry, but he has every right to be. 
Verse 16. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. It is the idolatrous sin of the people that is the cause of this coming destruction. No one else can shoulder the blame. They have forsaken the one true God. And like most of their kings, the people are called evil. They have worshipped other gods, false gods, mere knockoffs of God, generic, no-name brand, not tested, not FDA approved, not certified, placebo gods. They have not only worshipped them, but made offerings to them, burned sacrifices and sought blessings from gods that don't exist. But what's even worse is that these false gods were made by their own hands, in their own image. They knew that these were nothing more than toys, but they were easier to manipulate, easier to please, easier to ignore, because they were pretend. But what is most astounding about this whole uh thing is that the very God who formed each of them and us in our mother's womb is ignored, sorry, but who knew us before we were conceived, the very God who created humans in his image is ignored because of idols created in our image. The people are worshiping a photocopy of a photocopy. A second-hand tape recorded from another second-hand tape. And what this has in the way of convenience, it lacks in the way of fidelity. Those younger than me may not remember this, but when you copied a tape, they had a thing called a tape. Um, uh, when you copied a tape from the original, not that I ever did that because that's piracy and that's illegal, but... When you, if you copied a tape, so I've read, uh, it lost something of its pop and polish. And if you copied a tape from a copy, it started to squeal and hiss. And it was full of background noise, and eventually the background noise took over the music. This is what idolatry is. Worshipping the background noise and not the music. And we aren't innocent of this. Just because we don't worship statues, our hearts are idol factories. We find things to worship that aren't God, no matter how godly they may seem. One of my favorite movies when I was in college was Requiem for a Dream. If you haven't seen it, don't. The movie is a visual fiasco of drug addiction gone wrong, but at its heart, it's an allegory about idolatry. Harry and his best friend Ty are low-life junkies who have a dream of scoring a pound of pure heroin. That way they can sell it off and live off the profits. But over the course of the movie, they lose sight of the dream and start to spiral into addiction and selfishness and insanity. 
They set, a set aside the long-term joy of the dream, however faulty it was, for the momentary satisfaction of now. And this is how those idol worshipers in Jeremiah's day and we idol worshipers today approach the long-term joy of God's plans and purposes and the momentary satisfaction of sex or drugs or work or relationships or tweets or Facebook posts or judging others or being right. We'd rather have financial security than trust God our Father to give us our daily bread. We'd rather have be financially independent instead of entirely dependent on the God who provides. We care more about our reputation than we do about our identity. We worry about what others might think about us than we actually care about what God actually thinks about us. Yet it is Jeremiah's calling to face this brokenness head on. Verse 17, but you... Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. God tells him to dress himself. Literally, gird your loins, which means put on your big boy panties and pull up your britches, tighten your belt, you're about to get to work. Or something like that. Jeremiah has to face this idolatrous people and tell them that they are bringing destruction upon themselves. And instead of the big mama encouragement, he gets daddy's rub some dirt on it and suck it up pep talk. Don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. Don't be terrified or I'll terrify you in front of them. Don't be scared of them. Be scared of me. But almost in the same breath, God assures Jeremiah, Verse 18, and I, behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. God holds this city of sin and idolatry, this city bound for destruction up next to Jeremiah and says, these walls will topple. These pillars will crumble under the weight of the Babylonians. But you, you are a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. You cannot be moved. You are invincible as long as I say so. Your own people will mock you. Your own people will shame you. Your own people will shake their heads in disgust at you. Your own people will try to harm you, try to destroy you, try to silence you, but you will not be moved. You are invincible as long as as I say so. We, Christians, are this city. We used to be that city facing utter destruction at the hands of God and man. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we all deserve to be steamrolled by the Babylonian offensive line. But Jesus became that city for us. 
He became the one slaughtered, the one ruined, the one demolished and left in shambles. Jesus Christ, God with us, our deliverer, took the brunt of God's wrath for our sins so that we could become a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. Because of what Jesus has done, we are invincible as long as God says so. Whatever your circumstances, whatever mess you have made, whatever storms you are going through, you cannot be moved unless God in His goodness and wisdom says so. Through God, we have a protector. And His name is Jesus Christ. His perfect life was lived as more than just an example, but as a qualification. It is what made him capable of dying a sacrificial death on our behalf so that our sins could be cast upon him. His miraculous resurrection showed us like the HGTV big reveal that no situation is too severe, no person too far gone to be redeemed, and not even death itself can separate you from him. This Jesus, this Deliverer, this Savior is our only hope. The world may be closing in around us, but not a hair can fall from our head without God say so. There's an old hymn that says, Plagues and death around me fly. Till he bids, I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit till the God of love sees fit. Christ Central Church. Through God in Jesus Christ, each and every one of you has a purpose, a promise, and a protector. You are loved with a love that is outside of time and eternal. It knows no end and it knows no beginning. And no one and no thing can harm you or destroy you so long as the God of love says you are needed where he has you. And if you believe this, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And we thank you for your son who has made the way for us that we can be a fortified city. Father, let this word and your promises be a blessing to us that we can find peace in them today and forever. Amen.